Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, the widow's offering. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow and put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Good morning, friends of our Way community, and also to those outside of our community popping in virtually for the first time or maybe for the second, third, fourth time uh, recently. We're glad to have you. Uh, We need this place. We need a space of respite and uh, relief from chaos. We do. Uh, This is what what I'm about to say is uh, for our family community, and I need about three minutes here. Um, You're going to get two sermons today, two for one Sunday. And uh, it's because uh, I I haven't really preached to you since a lot of things have happened in our culture and nation. Uh, Last week during worship, I felt so disconnected from worship last Sunday uh, because my heart was laden like yours with many of the events that had transpired. There's been an absolute gash that has happened in our nation. Uh, The the New York Times put it this way, a a civic communion has been broken. Interesting word choice. Again from the New York Times, the temple of American democracy was desecrated. Again, interesting word choice uh, to show import and gravity religious and transcendent terms are used. As if uh, we all know, as if it's assumed, the, the good news to our culture, the gospel to our culture, is our political stability. Uh, now that may be the gospel of American democracy, but I'm going to submit to you that is not the good news of Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself is a king who is thoroughly good. Can you think about any leader just in the last 50 years, 100 years, that you would say, oh, they are thoroughly good. He is right all of the time. He is just. He is merciful. He's both powerful and humble. He doesn't waver. He doesn't change. He doesn't degrade. He doesn't miss any promise he's ever made. He doesn't lie. He's truth with a capital T. Jesus is not hateful. He's not spiteful. He's not mocking. He's not violent. He has taken all violence upon himself. Did you know that Jesus is not seeking to punish, crush, or shame his enemies? 
No, no, he is seeking to buy them back by putting shame upon himself. Christian and Jesus follower this morning, of course, violence against our enemies is not of Jesus. But but here, I want us to go a little closer. Any violence, mocking or hate on social media, foments the same thing. See, murder starts inside before it ever makes it to a baton, a pitchfork, or a gun. Jesus said that. Beware the murderous log in thine own eye. I was so deeply saddened in the last couple weeks when an elder in Jesus' church in our denomination on Twitter mocking, calling his opponents cuss words, unchecked, If you would just read his feed, you would never even remotely guess that he followed Jesus. Now that's violence. I think it's so timely for us to hear Martin Luther King Jr. He he said this, he says, you know, we adopt the means of non-violence because our end is a community at peace with itself. We will try to persuade with our words, but if our words fail, we will try to persuade with our acts, our non-violent acts. Christian, to you this morning, constitutionally granted rights are not the charter or the North Star for the Christian. I, I gotta be honest, I wouldn't die so that my personal privilege would keep on going and endure. I'm not guaranteed those rights under the cross. Most historical Christians have not lived under those governments or privileges. Now, I am so grateful that God has put me here in America as an American. That is much, as an American, there is much afforded me. I don't hate where God has put me. But America is not my final home. It's a rental. America is not the curator or caretaker for godliness around the globe. You know what I would die for and live for is St. Paul. St. Paul's words when he says, do good to those who hate you. Pray for those in power. You You know when he wrote that Nero was in power. He said, live dignified, godly, quiet lives. Increasingly, uh, and I borrow this phrase from my wife, increasingly my wife and I are what we call politically homeless. Why is that? We feel very, very uncomfortable with hate from any corner, any field, any mouth. Jesus follower this morning, I'm going to tell you this, your hate is not justified towards any other image bearer. It's not justified. I don't want to change your mind about your political views. And that makes both Republicans and Democrats very upset with me. (laughs) But I do want you to ask this question. 
Where will I get the lens by which I view all of life? Will that be from Jesus? Or will it be from the talking points of your favorite Paul? I conclude sermon number one. I love you. We're here at the end of these three weeks that we've done with our church plant, our daughter church plant, uh, Bridges Community Church, and it's the third in our series on generosity. Uh, Jesus says that one of the best, one of the easiest barometers um, of the human heart, he says this, where your treasure is, where your wealth is, what you push your money towards, you're going to find your heart. There will your heart be also. Every year, I go to Dr. Awada in Pasadena for my yearly checkup. I'm a middle-aged male, right? I get the blood test, the stress test. <laughs> Every year I do this. Why? I got to know where I am. Let's look at those levels. Let's look at those triglycerides. Let's look at the cholesterol. Where are you? What's happening? Let's look at that blood pressure. Um, I need this. I need this. Uh, what I wouldn't be able to do is go into Dr. Wada's office and say, "Hey, Dr. Wada, I, I want a full, I want the full checkup, everything, but like I don't want you to use your stethoscope and I don't want you to check my heart. I don't want, I don't want that. Like, give me everything, but don't check me that. Don't check out that." Uh, and yet, many Americans have said that when approaching the scriptures, we can talk about anything. But don't talk about my heart. Don't talk about where I put my wealth. Don't do that. And here, we're going to talk about it because Jesus wants us to talk about it. I've noticed in my own heart, more than any other year, this past year, uh, I've noticed plaque build up on my heart as it relates to my wealth. More than any other year, I've checked my stocks. That's why I need this and you need this because there's a plaque build up. We say, oh, wait, wait, wait. Where's my heart? Where's my heart as it relates to my wealth? And what do I need to do about it? I need to run to Jesus. So uh, a couple things I just want to say is God has provided for me, but it's provided for our community at the way. There were amazing things we were able to do in 2020 because God has blessed us. We were able to help out La Casa Community Center. City to city, a church planting uh, arm of Redeemer in New York City that's happening here in Southern California, and church plants. We were able to begin a church plant in Calabasas. Uh, we were able to support uh, uh, campus ministries for university students at UCSB, UCLA, USC. Uh, there was an incredible response from our community to help those within our community and without for those impacted by the shutdowns since March. Uh, we've been able to partner with our ministry partners in Kyrgyzstan and the Oak House in there in Kyrgyzstan. Um, we were able to meet and surpass uh, our expenses, not only just meet budget, but go beyond. So God has provided. The second thing I'd say about generosity here is we're not going to be talking about giving money. 
Um, you've noticed this if you've been here in our community is we don't talk about giving, we talk about generosity because giving is too specific. It's too narrow. Now, why is that? Well, you and I have done this probably. It's like we can give money and it's kind of as a down payment or a loan that we give to God. Okay, I'll give you this, but God, I just want you to remember you do owe me one. You owe me a life that is pain-free. You owe me uh, a life free of difficulties. And so we can look at giving and say, look what I've done for you. Now, now you have to do something for me. We can give money and actually be mad about it. This was a lot of my experience growing up. You can live a life of low-grade grudge based on duty because you're just doing the right thing and giving money to the church or charitable organizations. But you know, there's not joy there. You can give money because it makes you feel good. It's the dopamine rush. You give to others so that you feel good. It's actually not about them. Um, you can give money and not be thoroughly generous, right? Not with your time, or your talents, your attentions, your energies. And so we talk about generosity. We don't talk about giving. Um, uh, generosity is not limited just to money, but all of life. Uh, a good way to put this, and I'll put this up on the screen as well. Generosity is a heartfelt reality that touches every pursuit. Giving, on the other hand, giving is an external practice that only touches on one's image. Okay, so we talk about generosity because we want something that is pervasive over all of life. Um, this, because it's a heart reality, we also see something else. Um, we don't fix a generosity problem by merely cutting back expenditures or giving more, right? We don't fix the problem that way because it's a heart reality. To, uh, if we were able to do that, to achieve generosity through external goodness, that's just religious moralism. That's not of Jesus. So briefly, I want to look at these four verses of the widow's might. And there are two obvious points. And I think they're okay points, but they're not the main point. There's two obvious points here, and I'll probably give a minute, right, to these. The widow did give a larger percentage of her money than the rich people. And Jesus points to that reality. Luke 21, the, the third verse in Luke 21, he says, the poor widow has put in more than all of them. So he recognizes the, uh, the scale of the gift. The second is this. He said, the rich uh, gave from their excess, their play money, the margins, and she gave from her daily budget what she had to live on and eat on. He says this in verse 4, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on, just to live. Make ends meet. And because of that, Jesus looks at that as a marvelous gift. It is a marvelous, we should marvel at that. Uh, I was in seminary in grad school in St. Louis uh, and I had a friend that 
uh, I had been introduced to. His name was Garamu uh, Workinkanahu. I just called him Workyu. Uh, he was an Ethiopian immigrant, recently immigrated, and he was navigating uh, a foreign, overwhelming new country, system, and city. And he was starting a cleaning business where he would clean office buildings in downtown St. Louis uh, in the middle of the night. Now, I did not want that job. To my shame, I thought it was way, way below me. But I wanted to help work you get his business off the ground. So about four hours in, when, when this first happened, about four hours in, we would take a small break out of the back of his ratty van in downtown St. Louis. And one of the first times we had this little break, um, he pulled out a very neat package, and there were two pieces of bread, maybe a cut above sliced white bread, and a 12-ounce can of Coke. And I said, uh, I just, uh, hey, work you, is that your dinner? <laughs> and he said this, yes, team, and you are welcome to half, if you wish. <laughs> That's copper might marvelous kind of gift. He would give me half of what he was going to eat on, live on. Now those two points are good. Number one, the scale of the gift in relation to overall income. Two, the nature of it being sacrificial, right? Into eating money, survival money, that's incredible. But I, I want to make this clear, is Jesus is not high-fiving anyone over this little story. Okay, he's not handing out awards. He's actually disgusted with something that is happening at the temple. Uh, now, someone can say, hey, look, I, I didn't get Jesus' disgust from the, from the four verses that were read. Um, but, but we get this in the chapter before, Luke 20, and also the rest of Luke 21. Jesus is grieved. He's angry. He's upset with the relationship with God's house, his house, and the relationship that that house has with money. And this is not something, when he's looking at the widow, this is, this is not something that he wants perpetuated and praised. He's sickened. He doesn't, he doesn't want more poor people giving their daily budget that they eat out of. See, we, we miss it. If we think the application is, is everybody just give more like the poor widow, give harder. No, that's religious moralism, and it kills us. That's why we hate money sermons. Yeah, it pokes our idolatry of wealth, but the solution is barely any better. That's why we hate these sermons. Um, if you can remember, if you're, if you're middle-aged like me, you can probably remember this, middle-aged or older, since the 80s, um, the American evangelical church has trended towards what? Size, slickness, big buildings, big programs, nice amenities, nice production values, campuses with coffee shops, $10 million parking decks, not making that up. It, it, it's like capitalism's uh, cathedrals, the new modern version of the cathedral. Right? Make everyone feel like it's a super nice um, outlet mall. And since the 80s, the broader culture has become less religiously tied to any formal institution in Christianity. And so the church has doubled down on it and said, hey, we're, we'll make it cooler, we'll make it hipper, we'll make it really well lit and have free trade coffee. 
And the culture has basically said, uh, no, P.S. Disneyland does it better. I'll go there. Right? Building those edifices has come on the backs of those most desperate for relief. Think of the cash spent on these campuses and buildings and jets, I'm sorry to say. Think of what it could do do and be spent on a city, a community. See, many times the vulnerable are eaten and swallowed and indebted because someone says, send the money in. It's a seed. Send it in. Send it in. I know you're in debt. I know you got bills. Send it in. Give it to God's house. We need a better sound system. Does this make you sick a little bit? Or a lot? By God's house. By leaders supposedly representing God. Jesus looks at the rich and the widow putting in their gifts and he's disgusted by it. This is not a story that Jesus wants duplicated. Let me give you some background. All right, and then we're going to double back. We're going to backtrack and go back to the widow. Um, the footprint of the second temple. So that's Herod's temple. Herod's temple has been the pet project for Herod for the past 30 plus years. Okay, he's basically remodeling, rebuilding uh, Solomon's temple, but shaped to his desires. And Herod's temple, the second temple, more than doubled its footprint than Solomon's temple. And most of the new space went to the court of Gentiles. Now, that's anybody that's a non-Jew can go to the court of Gentiles. And what was it turned into? A gift shop, the market. Most of the new space in Herod's second temple went to making money. Now, cross-reference, you might remember Jesus throwing some tables. <laughs> Now, the account of the widow's mite is placed exactly where it is for a reason. It, it might be it seemed like this four-verse aside where we're supposed to say, oh, and remember to give sacrificially. No. It's nestled into this string of descriptions about the temple and money, extending into Luke 20. And in Luke 20, Jesus is saying, hey, I, I want you to watch out for, especially when we're talking about my house, watch out for the educated and the polished and respectable people and the culturally honored and the socially decorated people that are doing photo op, photo opt nicety. And they can even pray super long. Good for them. If you follow the money, if you follow the trickle of money and how they made money, Jesus says, they devoured widows' houses. Their business dealings were on the backs of the most vulnerable. Degrade loans, junk packages, payday loans, high interest, usury. He says something like this in Luke 11, so even further back. Only place where he calls down woe on a group of people, a set of people, a person, a type of person. And he says, look, sure, you can give money now. You can even be super detailed about how much you gave. And he says this in Luke 11, But woe to you, Pharisees, because you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect the justice and love of God. 
You should have done these things without neglecting the others. See, they don't have a giving problem. They gave. They had a heart problem. They show give. But they neglect people who really need it. Right after the account of the widow's might, this is in Luke 21, he tells them that the very basis of all of religion, the temple, God's house, the second temple, will be destroyed and no longer need it. In other words, every single religious trapping, ritual, process, performance is going to be found in himself and not by going to a temple. Not the enrichment of edifice. He's going to occupy and fulfill all the pictures that the temple were giving. And Jesus is nauseated by seeing something in the widow. All of this sacrificial money is going into something that is useless religion. The edifice of religious brand. I'm in my my 40s. You guys know this. I'm midlife. Why do you think I love walking into little church plants where the coffee is meh there's very little slickness the programs haven't even gotten off the ground there's rickety chairs it smells like a karate classroom and and, and the show whatever we put on the show can never ever compete with the stage of LA Why, why, why do I love being in a church plant community man because they make much of Jesus and nothing else many of you in our community you sacrificed the amenities of the Omega Evangelical Church but I want to tell you something you were also giving a gift to your family. Right? I know we don't have the amenities of the American mega church, but your kids are going to grow up and they're going to know something. Oh, that's where people get together and they make much of Jesus. See, that's what I want you to do, is I want you to give your money to the things that make much of Jesus and to the things that Jesus' heart prizes. Jesus is looking at this widow, and he sees this huge sacrificial gift of two coppers, and he's like, what, that won't do anything? What a waste! This poor widow gets nothing in return for her sacrifice. She's swallowed by a religious machine that only enriches itself. And the religiosity won't bring you any closer to God. And that burden just grows bigger and it's on the widows and it's digging into what they live on to eat. Jesus is so upset that the richest are not shouldering the burden of the temple and true religion. What is true religion? The fatherless, the orphan, the vulnerable, the weak, the despised. That is true religion that they are taken care of by the people who follow Yahweh. And Jesus says, oh, the poor are shouldering that burden. David says this in Psalm 68. 
father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. That's where God lives. That's where God lives. Asaph, not David, says this in Psalm 82. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of those who are afflicted and those who are destitute. Rescue the weak. Rescue the needy. Deliver them, what, from the hand of the wicked. Those are things close to Jesus' heart. God will never make his name great on the backs of the poor. God will never make his name great on the backs of the poor. There are dozens of social and, and, and political and economical statements I want to make here, but I'm going to limit my observations to Jesus' church. It's what I've been called to do. Is we are not going to get money to make our name and our brand and our campus bigger and bigger and bigger. Our end game is not an edifice. The church is a people and not a place. We are not going to put burdens of giving on the vulnerable. We are going to relieve the vulnerable and the poor. We are going to resource and relieve our neighbor, our community, and our city. Over the next five years, I want to see our community increase, not decrease, in living with the poor. That includes service to and in communities that are strange to us, yes. It includes supporting policies that dignify, respect, and aid them. It includes being an an evangelist of sorts for their advantage and their perspective and their flourishing. It includes being a part of a civic fabric that advocates for them in town halls and petitions and initiatives and lobbying and voting. It includes forming authentic relationships and friendships that are not superior and equal parts learning from one another. It includes giving money and wealth away in large measure in the ways that are well-received and non-shaming. It includes increasingly pushing our wealth to the place where God lives. Why? Okay. Jesus is the defender of the poor. That's where he lives. He's close to the poor, right? Increasingly, let's move in with Jesus. Like, let's not ask him to move in with us. Um, What will this do in a broader sense? For our neighbors, city, and L.A. Basin. What will it do in a broader sense? Okay. There is a convincing erudition of wholesale generosity that will convince the most educated. Okay, what was the jumble of words I just spewed out? I'm going to say it again, and then I'll explain it. There is a convincing erudition of wholesale generosity that will convince the most educated. This wholesale generosity will have a way of convincing and shaming the academic, cultural, powerful elite. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
there is a convincing erudition of wholesale generosity that will convince the most educated. Case in point, I've shared this story with some of you. Uh, Nicholas Kristof, um, columnist for the New York Times, uh, it, he, he wrote this article, and uh, it, he, he, said, he said, you know, Christians are, uh, are looked at as kind of rubes. Um, it's an old carnival, carnival term. Um, he said, it's the only group you can really safely, open, safely and openly mock are those who follow Jesus. And Christoph says, look, I'm not religious. I don't even like religion. Um, so he said, he said, but I'm just going to call it like I see it. And then he cited this study, and he said, um, uh, 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 non-religious, self-identifying liberals, and, and he didn't mean that in a political sense. He meant like um, those open-minded, enlightened, open inquiry and pursuit. Uh, that's what he means by liberal. Uh, he said, non-religious, self-identifying liberals like himself champion the poor and the vulnerable with their mouth. But he said, Christians not only tithe and give, but they give, live their lives in, and this is his words, in gift. They give more, they volunteer more than any other segment of society. And so, Kristoff, uh, in this article, he was awed and he was struck by this example of Dr. Stephen Foster, who is a Christian, and he met him in Angola. Angola has the largest infant mortality rate in the world. Um, he had a clinic there. Um, there were thugs who tried to kidnap 25 nurses near his clinic. Uh, uh, Dr. Foster stood his ground and they fired AK-47s at his feet, still stood his ground, saved the nurses. Um, he went there with a, his family. His son contracted polio. His daughter survived cerebral malaria. Um, one time, Angola was in a famine, and so his family, along with everyone else, was under um, food rations. And at one time, he shared their family rations uh, with 100 other villagers. And at the time, it actually made his family very angry at him and sour at him. But now they are amazed. Uh, it makes 35 grand a year. And Christoph noticed something. Who was neither a Christian and not into religion. He noticed a liberality unmatched with his friends at parties, functions, and galas. He noticed a liberality with everything. And Christoph says this, who is the liberal? That's very difficult to mock, he writes. There is a convincing erudition of wholesale generosity that will convince the most educated. Friend, Jesus our might, our strength, gave up his wealth and his status and his bank account so that you and I might be able to stand again before God with no shame now, because he stood in the place, right, and that, that took all of our garbage, all of our shame, all of our repeat offenses and offending, right, he took that, then he transferred all of his wealth and status to our names. That is wholesale generosity, isn't it? Jesus, our might. See, we don't imitate his generosity. No one does. We live in it. 
We live in it for the advantage of all those who are weak and needy and dependent and vulnerable. That's where he lives. So, what are we trusting in and praying for and working toward? Wholesale, whole person, immersive, complete, thorough generosity that we have received from Jesus himself. Let's pray. Jesus, make us generous. Every part of us. Yes, including our wealth, but every part of us. It's your in your name we pray. Amen.